Hello, I'm Nina Luo. And I'm Max Lydia. We're psychiatry residents at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And this is the History of Madness podcast. In this podcast, we will be telling fascinating stories from the history of psychiatry. In this episode, we will be talking about the history of neurosyphilis, which was known as general paralysis of the insane. This was a condition first described in Paris in the early 19th century, and it was called dementia paralytica. Hmm. And by the late 19th century, up to 20% of British male asylum admissions received this diagnosis. Wow. So essentially, asylums began to fill up with these patients, and they were usually middle-aged men, struck Mm -hmm. down in the prime of their working lives, leading to their loss of income. So there were great socioeconomic implications for this disease. And even worse, this disease was invariably fatal within Mm. a few years. Wow, that's so interesting. I feel like syphilis now has a very specific socioeconomic group that it's more prevalent in. And, you know, it's like hiring people who don't have access to as routine preventative care screenings or who are potentially less able or less likely to seek medical attention if something appears to be wrong. But it kind of strikes me that at this time when they had no idea what it was, what caused it, and had no treatments, it would be pretty universal across social classes, which must have been pretty terrifying. Yeah, and this was very prominent men had syphilis Mm. because back in the day, that was how um, they had sex. They... You know, they slept with prostitutes, and this was men of all social classes. Huh. Jeez. So, with general paralysis of the insane, it came in several stages, and usually it started with some speech irregularities. The patients had memory loss, pupils that would accommodate but not constrict in reaction to light, and their speech was slurred as if they were drunk. They had trembling in their hands and face and a swaying gait. Eventually, these patients would be no longer able to speak or walk, and they would die in a convulsive fit. Mm. And the psychiatric symptoms associated with this was something that they termed mania paralytica. This was especially characterized by euphoria and delusions of grandeur. Mm. So these patients would think that they were God or royalty, that they had millions of pounds, many wives, businesses. They would claim to have slept with 500 women. Hmm. Here's a case study from the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, and it was published in March 13th, 1884. And it'll give you a good idea of what the typical patient with general paralysis of the insane looked like. Okay. Do you want to read this? Sure. Yeah. So this is a case of E.A.L., aged 48, married Cooper, a stout, vigorous, coarse, profane man who used tobacco and whiskey to excess, has worked very hard and has had much trouble with his wife. Six weeks before admission, became irritable in manner, very unreasonable, and neglected his business to make foolish bargains, developed delusions of great wealth, but no tremor of lips and no unsteadiness in walking. Very indignant because he brought to the asylum, but soon settled down and declared he would not leave. Very extravagant, declaring he had bought the f- 
Fitchburg Railroad and would build a city at his home next summer, which would be a, quote, ripper, end quote. He failed quite rapidly, but never had convulsions. After some months, he developed the usual paralytic symptoms in speech and walk. Ten months after admission, he was transferred to Worcester and died within two years from the inception of the disease. What I love about this case was the language they used back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, right now, if we are interviewing patients, we'll say, are you spending money you don't have? But here it's... It's very judgmental. He, he neglected his business to make foolish bargains yeah. and was very extravagant. And they describe him as a coarse, vigorous, coarse, profane man, which seems a little <laughs> like... It seems a little more detailed than we need. Here's an interesting thought experiment. What if this patient walked into an inpatient unit in this day and age and we were on service, what would we think of this patient? Yeah. What would we think so, is his diagnosis? I guess to conceptualize it in a way that we would say rather than this kind of very flowery, judgmental language, we'd probably say so 48-year-old married male with ex-psychiatric history who presents with acute onset of grandiosity, irritable mood, and impulsivity and impulsivity um and then we'd probably comment on some specific things we'd see so based just on that and based on his presentation i'd think okay this guy is probably manic uh, i don't know what, what would be the things you would think of we would probably think you know we, we don't know exactly what his psychiatric history right. is so we would probably think drug use we think yeah. methamphetamine use so we would get a drug screen obviously mm -hmm. we would probably think like bipolar disorder causing the mania probably yeah i mean so he's 48 so if we were able to get any collateral i mean if this was like an acute presentation it was totally different than his baseline and no family history we'd probably go down the route of syphilis we'd get labs we'd get complete bug count metabolic labs we'd test for syphilis hiv probably get an MRI, maybe an EEG, depending on the rest of the presentation. So we would do all that. If this were truly first episode psychosis, we would cover all our bases by getting those labs today. So we would right. figure it out eventually. But to be honest, I don't think neurosyphilis would be my top differential if no. this guy walked into yeah. the inpatient unit. I would probably, if he started having these neurological symptoms, I would probably think some sort of autoimmune encephalitis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, potentially. If we were psychiatry residents back in the late 1800s and this man was on the inpatient unit, we would know right away that, I mean, this would be at the top of our differential. Mm -hmm. Yes, 20%, you said. Yeah, 20%, especially being male, middle-aged, you know, engaging in some of the behaviors that were yeah. associated at the time with general paralysis of the insane. Hmm. We would be able to make that diagnosis right away, I think. Yeah. But nowadays, I think this would be considered somewhat of a zebra. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I've seen two cases of neurosyphilis ever, and neither of them were psychotic. They were just, like, kind of incidentally diagnosed. Have you ever? No. Yeah. So it's, it's not common now. And because, A, it's less common in the population, and B, because we can treat for it when we do find it. So it's less likely to develop into, like, full-blown neurosyphilis. But of course we are taught to have that for sure on a differential right, because right. it's a it's a know, can't miss diagnosis. Down down in Florida, there are old people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we hear this all the time, you know, always always think about neurosyphilis. Mm hmm Yeah, it's a great mimicker, right? Yeah. 
Okay, so what did they think back in the day was causing general paralysis of the insane? Because back then, they didn't know this was neurosyphilis. They thought the causes were maybe this was hereditary, maybe this was caused by head trauma, cold, fright, and something vaguely known as degeneration. So Mm. what is degeneration? You can think of it as kind of this bucket of all the societal ills, what they they considered (laughs) societal ills and evils back in the 1800s. So, you know, alcohol, drugs, brothels, and urbanization in general. And they thought that the evils triggered disturbances in the nervous system. And then this led to neurosis and was inherited from generation to generation. Um, and this is using their language. This is not right. appropriate in modern oh, day yeah. language, but this is what they would, you know, consider the result of degeneration. So neurosis, hysteria, mania, insanity, imbecility, terrible word, criminality, sterility, all this was degeneration. And essentially this was a predecessor to the argument for eugenics and eventually genocide. And to think about this, how stigmatized these sorts of things were, it was known that syphilis was passed on sexually and that it was also passed from mother to child. So people with syphilis, they didn't have good marriage prospects. And if someone knew that a brother, for example, had syphilis, then their sister would not have good marriage prospects either. I see. When I hear these descriptions of degeneration and imbecility, it just makes me wonder, like, do they hate their patients? What could, like, possibly be the point? Ah, it's just kind of disgusting. Like, I cringe whenever someone will say substance abuse rather than substance use. It's so stigmatizing that you can't help but sense the venom beneath that. It just seems so counter to what I think of as medicine. It's kind of disgusting. They had a much more paternalistic view back Mm. in the day yeah and we don't even think of degeneration in a bad way that word specifically right i thought when you when you first said it i thought of subacute combined degeneration like b12 deficiency it wasn't first off in my brain yeah nowadays we've recognized how stigmatizing some of the language doctors use are Mm -hmm. for example mental retardation we do not say that anymore no yeah Or imbecile. Or or imbecile. Yeah, or like so many other diseases like hypothyroidism used to be called cretinism. And it's just such a terrible thing. Um, So this is an interesting side bit. Hitler, very famously, saw... Oh, great. (laughs) Yes, we're talking about Hitler now. (laughs) So Hitler famously saw degeneration in modern art. And he thought that modern art promoted the degeneration of the German race and that the chief culprits of this were the Jewish art dealers and the Jewish art critics. And in July 1937, the Nazi party put on two art exhibitions in Munich. The great German art exhibition supposedly showcased works that Hitler approved of. And these were statuesque blonde nudes, soldiers, landscapes. I wonder who painted the landscapes. (laughs) And then right down the road, was the modern German art exhibition called the Degenerate Art Exhibition, featuring famous names in modern art, 
The paintings were hung haphazardly to reflect the degeneration, and curators were encouraged to mingle with the crowds and criticize the artworks in the exhibit. The Degenerate Art Exhibition drew more than 2 million visitors at the time, and ironically became the most <laughs> popular modern art show of all time. Damn People right. came knowing that this could be the last time they could see some of these great works of art before they were destroyed. So it's been theorized that this was Hitler's revenge for failing to get into art school. His aesthetic was landscapes yeah. and realistic paintings, and he felt rejected by the art establishment that favored abstract and modern styles over the types of styles he preferred. He, if I recall, that's reflected in a lot of his tastes for things, whether it be opera or architecture. Everything had to have some kind of connection to his mythical great German past, and it was just all this idea that he built up in his head. a detour there. So returning to general paralysis in the same. So the main source I used for researching this topic was a book called How the Brain Lost Its Mind, Sex, Hysteria, and the Riddle of Mental Illness by Alan H. Ropper and Brian Burl. Great book. Mm. Highly recommend if you want to do okay. further reading. So the first person to ascribe a biological basis to general paralysis of the insane was a French physician named Antoine Bale. In 1768, hmm. Antoine Bale was a 19-year-old medical student at Charenton Insane Asylum just outside of Paris. He was performing autopsies on <laughs> patients who had died in their force. Yes, he was performing autopsies as a 19-year-old medical student. Oh like, God. what were you doing? I was a I was a lifeguard <laughs> and not a not a good one at that. So, man, that is wild. Yeah, so he began performing these autopsies on patients who died in their 40s with insanity accompanied by paralysis. And they had the characteristic mania with the delusion of grandeur and euphoria that eventually descended into physical incapacity, coma, and death. And in his estimation, a fifth of the asylum missions fit this profile. During these autopsies, he found a commonality and that was meningitis in the brains of these patients. And he thought, well, this could be the cause of their insanity. And this went against conventional thinking at that time because this was a time period of Phil Pinnell, the great Phil mm. Pinnell, who we really consider the first psychiatrist <clears throat> and his student Esquirrel. So the idea that there could be organic causes for madness just did not exist back then. Philip Pinnell's theory was that insanity did not originate in the biology and chemistry of the body, but the spirit. And he and his student, Esquirol, pioneered moral treatment, which focused on psychological well-being, which was a great yeah. idea. And they designed asylums featuring open spaces and access to nature. Kind of with the idea that if these patients could be morally purified, then their mental illness would get better. And it's interesting. This is mind-body dualism rearing its ugly head 
potentially for the first time, you can hold up an inflamed meningi from an autopsy and be like, look, do you agree this is inflamed? That seems like a pretty concrete evidence. Like, that's a hard thing to find in psychiatry. It's just hard to argue against what the established thinking was at the time. Hmm. Have you heard of the idea of the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn? No. It's kind of the idea that to whatever the prevailing zeitgeist is at the time, any contradictory evidence is essentially ignored until it builds up to such a critical mass that it is very quickly accepted as this new paradigm and you'll have a very rapid shift in paradigm where then the cycle will start over. Any evidence against the hypothesis will accumulate slowly and no one will really believe it until all of a sudden everyone does. Yeah, and I would argue that they simply didn't have treatments for biological causes of mental illness at that time period. So if you're going to say this was caused by something biological, Right. What role do the psychiatrists have in that? The psychiatrists, they ran the asylums back then, and they were treating mental illness by improving conditions, which is a very valid idea. Yeah, that, but, that is yeah, very true, yeah. But it doesn't treat everything. There has to be some kind of incentive to believe it. So when Bale brought up this idea that specific brain illness produced insanity, he faced much ridicule. He was only 23 when he published this in his doctoral thesis and deemed the cause of general paralysis in the sane chronic anachronitis, which is an inflammation of the membrane surrounding the brain. He faced even personal attacks and eventually quit his post to become a medical librarian. And it was Louis Florentine Calmile, another young intern at Charrington, who continued the work on general paralysis of the insane and gave it the name. He examined many cases and developed his theory for the stages of presentation. So pretty similar to what Bale said, first came the speech irregularities, then the fine motor movement impairment, followed by florid manic insanity. Men were afflicted more than women, mm. and soldiers disproportionately numbered among the men. And Hmm. You know, you could probably guess why that was. Yeah. But in pointing out that there could be an organic cause of sanity, this actually ended up legitimizing the field of psychiatry. Hmm. Uh, Asylum superintendents were not just glorified jailers, but they could start to find a path towards the medical establishment. But even Bale and Kalmau did not make the direct connection between syphilis and general paralysis of the same. It would take until 1853 for Friedrich von Esmark and Peter Willers Jensen to state that connection, but then it would really take until 1913 when Hideo Noguchi found the spirochete treponema pallidum in the brain of a GPI patient hmm. that this link was, this connection was definitively proven. Hmm. So, what is syphilis? Syphilis has been around since the time of Columbus. And according to the Colombian theory, it has existed in a mild form in Haiti, and the Haitians had a native immune response to it. The Europeans who arrived did not, and they picked up the pox and spread it throughout Europe, and this was further spread by armies as European wars waged throughout the centuries. It's ironic that you say that they picked up the pox because they dropped off the pox. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was a, it's a general exchange. Yeah, so for those of our listeners who are not necessarily in the medical field, syphilis occurs in three stages. The first stage is a chancre, which is a painless lesion at the site of the genitals, and then that heals. And then a third of the untreated patients develop the secondary stage, which is characterized by high fever, swollen lymph nodes, and a distinctive rash, which can involve the palms and the soles of the feet. And then following the highly infectious primary and secondary stage, the infection then enters this non-infectious latency period and could possibly just not progress further. But for a minority of patients who are untreated, they develop over a number of years the tertiary stage. And this could be serious complications affecting the heart, the bones, and the brain. Mm -hmm. And that would be neurosyphilis, which is general paralysis is insane. So I found this very interesting, where the term syphilis was coined. And it can be traced back to a Latin poem by an Italian physician named Girolamo Fracastoro in 1530. The poem he wrote was essentially about a young shepherd boy named Syphilis who was tending to the king's flock of a thousand oxen and a thousand sheep. Sirius the sun god was casting this unending heat over the land and scorching the fields and Syphilis railed against the sun god declaring, well, we make all our offerings to the god in humble faith, but this is how you reward us. We might as well make our offerings to the earthly king. The sun god was angry and afflicted poor Syphilis with horrific sores all over his body, and it spread all across his land, sparing not even the king. So you mentioned this was in 1530. So this was when Syphilis was theoretically introduced back into the European population. Is he writing about syphilis the disease, or is he just happened to be using this metaphor? No, I believe that he was writing about syphilis itself. It was mm. a known disease back then, but there were a lot of diseases floating around. You know, this was when plagues were spreading all over Europe. So he was writing this essentially as a metaphor and arguing for things like sanitation, quarantining, the different public health controls. Guy de Maupassant, the French author, was famously a womanizer who suffered from syphilis. Towards the end of his life, he began to have delusions. He accused his valet of embezzling money and plagiarizing his work. He said he was God's son by his mother and referred to his urine as a pile of diamonds. He eventually went into a coma for a week, followed by convulsions and death at the age of 42. Other famous sufferers include Winston Churchill's dad, Lord Randolph Churchill, Charles Baudelaire, Edward Manet, Nietzsche, Oscar Wilde, and Van Gogh. Hmm. G. de la Tourette. Oh, Does he sound familiar? Name. The tick disorder was famously named after him. He also investigated another mysterious illness alongside the famous Charcot. This was an illness characterized by a stumbling ataxic gait, an inability to stand with the eyes closed, and Argyle Robertson's pupil. This was known as prostitute's pupil. We still use that as a mnemonic in this day and age among med students. Mm -hmm. how, how do you describe it? So 
let's see if I'm remembering right, the people will accommodate to distance to help focus your vision, but it won't constrict when you shine like a bright light in it. And the prostitutes people, is that like a reference to the fact that sex workers are more likely to get syphilis? I think it's that, and I think it's also the accommodate and does not react. I think it's both. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And the German physician, Moritz Heinrich Romberg. Oh, Romberg. Romberg test. That, that sounds familiar, too. Uh-huh. He is famous for inventing the test for tabby's versalis. Which would be the Romberg. Exactly. Do you want to explain? The Romberg is a test for how well the rest of your body is able to manage where it is in space. So normally you have both the proprioceptive input from your joints and your muscles telling you where your body is, but you also have the visual stimulus, which can help check everything. So the idea is that you stand with your hands outstretched and you close your eyes. And then a positive Romberg test is when you start to lose your balance with your eyes closed, meaning that you don't have good proprioception you're just relying on your visual stimulus. So I always knew that Argyle Robertson's pupil was a test for syphilis mm-hmm. back in the day, but I guess I never associated Romberg's sign with I syphilis. Yeah. So both Charcot and Tourette agreed that there was a high degree of correlation between syphilis and Tabby's dorsalis, but they were hesitant to make that outright connection. Finally, Tourette conceded to the connection and published a book on spinal paralysis and the syphilis of the brain. But when describing it, he described the sensory motor symptoms and ignored the cognitive impairments. So one has to wonder if this is some denial on his part, Mm -hmm. because ironically, Tourette himself had contracted syphilis as a student many years ago. And in 1901, his behavior began to deteriorate. One day, his wife found him naked in his office, hiding under his desk, while a patient cowered in the corner. His speech became bizarre, his ideas grandiose, and eventually he was involuntarily committed to an institution, descended into madness, and died two years later. Wow. Yeah. The next great development in our story. In 1905, two German scientists... Fritz Schaden and Eric Hoffman found corkscrew-shaped bacterium treponema in the tissue samples of syphilitic patients. Scientists had hunted for the bug that caused syphilis for decades, and Schaden was the one who found it. His claim was confirmed with the development of dark field microscopy, which made the spirochetes easy to see. And then in 1906, the bacteriologist August von Wasserman developed the Wasserman's test, which was difficult to do and required specialist knowledge. It couldn't detect the presence of syphilis, but it could reliably detect the absence of syphilis. Mm. Essentially, there was now a blood test for general paralysis of the insane, which gave psychiatry a firm foothold in medicine. Paul Ehrlich invented Salverson, and this was based on the compound methylene blue, which he marketed as Ehrlich's magic bullet for the treatment Hmm. of syphilis. It quickly became the most prescribed drug in the world. So the discovery of the diagnostic test and the cure all happened within a span of five years. Wow. And then finally, Hideo Noguchi was a Japanese bacteriologist working at the Rockefeller Institute. And his main goal was working to find a cure for yellow fever, which he failed at. He also tried to develop a skin test for syphilis, which he also failed at. 
This was pretty controversial. He actually injected syphilis into 500 oh, subjects gosh. in institutions for the developmentally oh, delayed. God. It's like the Tuskegee experiment. Exactly. If they were developmentally delayed, that is not informed consent. This would not be something that we consider ethically allowed in this No, I, I think it wouldn't have even been considered ethical by the standards of the time. True. And that's why it caused an outcry at the time. Mm. And Noguchi countered that he tested this on himself, that he injected the syphilis into himself because he was so sure that he could find a cure for it. But what Noguchi did find, his discovery, was that he did find the spirochetes in the brain of patients with general paralysis of the insane, proving definitively that syphilis was the cause. Ironically, Noguchi ended up dying insane in 1928 huh. because he never sought treatment after self-inoculating with syphilis. So the first episode of our podcast was about the lobotomy, which won the Nobel Prize. The second psychiatry-related Nobel Prize was awarded in 1927 to Julius Wagner Warwick. Before researching this episode, I'd never heard of Wagner Warwick. How about you, Max? No, uh uh-uh, never. The Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded for malarial therapy for the treatment of syphilis. And this is exactly what it sounds like inoculating patients with malaria to treat syphilis. Hmm. And for this episode, I read a book called The Psychoanalyst and the Nazi Nobelist by Wallace B. Mendelssohn, which is a short and fascinating read about how the lives of Julius Wagner Warig and Sigmund Freud intersect. So Wagner Warig was a contemporary of Freud. They were born and died within a year of each other. They went to the same medical school. Hmm. They both wanted to go into internal medicine initially, but ended up in psychiatry, and they were actually friends throughout their lives. Hmm. Wagner Warwick came up with malarial therapy to treat general paralysis of the insane, while Freud became the father of psychotherapy, as we all know. But towards the end of their lives, they took very divergent paths. Freud was persecuted by the Gestapo, while Wagner Warwick became a Nazi. Wow. So... Julius Wagner Warwick was born on March 7, 1857, and he came from a well-respected family in Austria. His father was a civil servant who was later made a nobleman. He attended a famous boys' school growing up, and he was always interested in biology and went on to study at the University of Vienna. When an open position came up at the first psychiatric clinic in Vienna's Asylum of Lower Austria under the famous psychiatrist Max von Liedesdorf, he began his career in psychiatry. His research interests were specifically hypothyroidism and psychiatric conditions and general paralysis of the insane. He had a smooth and quick path to professorship at the University of Vienna and directorship at the first psychiatric clinic. After observing that psychosis in patients with general paralysis of the insane seemed to get better after contracting febrile illnesses like typhoid, he began to wonder if purposely infecting these patients with febrile illnesses could treat mental illness. Hmm. 
So he first began to infect his patients with streptococci and later tuberculin. And at the time he was doing these experiments, remember, 20% of asylums contained these patients whose prognoses were fatal within three to four years. And he contemplated what would be a suitable infectious disease and landed on malaria, which produced intermittent fevers and importantly had a cure, which is quinine. In June 1917, he came across a soldier who had contracted malaria in Macedonia during World War I. He took blood samples and injected them into patients with general paralysis of the insane. And of the nine patients he treated, six improved. They were then treated with quinine for malaria, but unfortunately, the first strain he landed on was particularly potent, and three of the four patients died, even after quinine treatment. He eventually found a safer strain and resumed his experiments. He found that after treatment, 84.8% had wow. full remission and 12.1% partial remission. Wow. Yeah, this was very early back in the early 1900s and mm-hmm. you can think of this as one of the first biological treatments for yeah. mental illness i mean this was even before the lobotomy yeah yeah and man it's like phenomenally successful like 80 85 percent full remission and then a handful partial remission so it helped geez a lot of people yeah but we gotta talk about the ethics of this right well first of all he almost certainly didn't have informed consent from these patients and patients died during his experiments Mm -hmm. and his first trials were like streptococci tuberculin things that did not have cures so he was essentially trading one disease for another right but at the same time if he didn't do this these patients would die a hundred percent right because this disease was fatal so do we take that sort of utilitarian standpoint to say that the sacrifice mm-hmm. of the few was justified for the good of the many. Oof. It, I mean, it definitely seems like there's an argument for that because it drastically improved the condition of a huge percentage of people who would otherwise just be in asylums and would die within the next couple of years. So it was a terminal illness. I think at that point, even now we'd consider desperate measures pretty acceptable. I think this is probably also mirrors the difference between Wagner Jurig and Freud. Wagner Jurig was a Nazi. He believed in eugenics. He believed in purity of races and relieving the world of degenerates or something like that, as he probably would have said. So he was very much of that utilitarian mindset. It doesn't matter what he does to these people because these people don't matter. They're going to die anyway, so might as well just do anything. Ultimately, I think probably inarguably did some good. He probably benefited a lot more people than he actually ended up harming. But the counter-argument, the other ethical way of looking at it is through the lens of virtue ethics. Does it matter what his intentions are? Does it matter that he saw these people as people he could just experiment on? Because their lives ultimately didn't matter to him. Maybe he wasn't as despicable as I'm making out, but I don't think that's a very wide jump. So there's him, on the other hand, whereas Freud had a lot more belief in the innate humanity of people. And Freud had his problems, too. He was, Mm -hmm. like, you know, he was paternalistic, he was sexist, he was homophobic. He, like, was not a great guy either, but I don't know. Comparing the two, even though, probably arguably, Wagner Jorig helped more people through his life 
Well, it's I, hard to argue I don't that. No, it's hard to say. Like Freud's legacy reaches to true. Today. Yeah, I mean, well, you mm-hmm. could you, conversely, you could argue that biological psychiatry gave us medications that's and true. all of that, and so I don't know. It's that's a hard thing. Like, was this ethically permissible? I don't know. I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that these people would not have been given informed consent. I think it'd be totally reasonable for them to choose, like, you know, do you want to opt into this trial where you're being given this deadly illness to potentially have some improvement in your known fatal illness? I think that'd be a totally reasonable thing yeah. to do. And this was decades before informed consent yeah. became the norm. I mean, interestingly, I think it's worth pointing out that the whole reason it became the norm was because of the Nazis. Right. There's another example that I like. So there's a what was widely considered to be the best anatomy textbook in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And for a long time, it was used in medical schools, and it probably helped train a lot of doctors really well. The catch is that the reason it was so detailed is because it was done on, you know, still living concentration camp survivors, not survivors, Mm. inmates. It's already been produced. That evil's been done. Can you make some good out of it, or is it just permanently tainted? The utilitarian argument is that the evil has been done. You can try and maximize the good. The, the virtue ethics argument is that it is, you know, but I feel like know, cursed or something. In so many domains, we have this argument in a similar vein again and again. Like even in art, like this was great art, but when you look back on mm. the legacy of the artists. Um, so I know that some museums kind of reach a compromise. We'll have a little blurb, but mm-hmm. keep the art up. So Wagner Ward, later in life, he became known for his support of racial hygiene. Mm. To put it into context, the idea of degeneration was widely accepted in Austrian psychiatry during his lifetime. And he said at one point, quote, the majority of degenerates end up in lunatic asylums or prisons. He believed that shell shock, or what we know as PTSD now, during World War I, was due to degeneration. He supported involuntary sterilization of the mentally ill. This is the same argument that he would have used to treat his general paralysis of the insane, that he's using to argue for eugenics. It's the same. In his mind, this is committing harm against these people who he would have deemed inhuman or, like, not worthy of reproducing for what he considered the greater good of society. But again, febrile therapy was what was available to treat general paralysis with insane, then a fatal disease, until penicillin was Hmm. produced in the 1940s. So, Wagner Warg has a mixed legacy, like most people we know in the history of psychiatry, including Freud himself. To dive a little more into Freud, Freud was born in 1856, and both of his parents were of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. They lived in the predominantly Jewish lower-class neighborhood of Leopoldstadt in Vienna. They were outsiders in Vienna and often struggled financially. Freud spoke five languages and was interested in philosophy. Freud eventually had to leave academics due to his financial situation and began to work at the second psychiatric clinic. For most of his life, He was a private practice psychiatrist who struggled to receive recognition from the academic circle and took a long and circuitous path to professorship. He was initially fascinated by Charcot's studies in hysteria 
and worked with his mentor and father figure, Joseph Brewer, in publishing Studies in Hysteria in 1895, which first explored the idea of talk therapy. When the Nazis took over, Freud escaped with the help of his prominent patients and lived out his life in London. It makes sense in exploring their backgrounds and upbringings how these two men would come to make contributions in the field of psychiatry in different arenas and then diverge so diametrically towards the end of their lives. Essentially, Wagner Warwick was establishment and benefited by being a part of it. It made sense as the Nazis took over that he would side with their views, whereas Freud always viewed himself as an outsider growing up in a Jewish family and also as an outsider in academic circles due to his views. Wagner was always interested in sciences and it made sense that he would gravitate towards a biological treatment for psychosis. From a modern day perspective, he was very paternalistic and viewed himself as safeguarding the community from degeneration. He made the decision about what an individual life was worth when it came to whether risky experimental treatment was worth it or whether it was right to sterilize someone with mental illness to prevent them from passing it on. Whereas Freud had broad interests in the humanities, which led him to develop psychotherapy. Not to say that, again, not to say that Freud is good or Wagner Warg was bad because both figures are controversial. And even today, Freud is controversial. And we could talk for days on Freud. And just to give you a little peek, we have a two episode arc coming up on Freud following this episode. But first, Max, what do you think about the background of doctors and how that influences us? I mean, frankly, I think a lot of us are closer to Wagner Warwick in terms of backgrounds of privilege. Yeah, yeah. I, um... Ooh, that's an uncomfortable idea <laughs> since he was the Nazi out of these two pairs. <laughs> but um, no, I, th- I, think you, I think you are right. I think uh, obviously there's a huge financial barrier to getting into medicine, not only in terms of the actual cost of schooling itself, but the ability to essentially take like 12 years at making either nothing or like less than your earning potential otherwise would be while taking on this huge debt. That takes a lot of, at the very least, planning. So you need ideally some societal or parental help and a huge financial cost that you have to be prepared to bear. I know it definitely resonates that there is this class divide in medicine versus a lot of other professions. And I guess begs the question, how does that influence how we take care of patients? Does it give us the sense that we know best? So, you know, what, what we say should be the way that it is, regardless of what our, you know, our foolish patients think. They clearly don't understand all that we understand. We, we must make these decisions for them. We must give them you know, syphilis or sterilize them or make sure that they're getting their preventative care or, or whatever? Or does it give us the sense that, you know, to whom much is given, much is owed? I like to think it's the latter, but I, I don't know what, what like, also, more influences my psychology. Also, that could be what Wagner Warwick thought. He thought he owed it to society to rid them of the degenerates. Mm. Yeah, and I think that really highlights his was certainly the majority view at the time. He was not an anomaly. He may have been a very average person with good intentions, but I think if we don't pause enough to reflect on the nature of our intentions, I think it's very easy to convince yourself that you're this kind of savior 
without really taking into account what the effect is on our patients. So we've talked in the past, I think something that I struggle with a lot is I, I view myself as potentially too paternalistic in situations, particularly when it involves like involuntary psychiatric hospitalization. And that's a spectrum. Like, there's very little evidence that you can fall back on. It's at some point a gut feeling. Like, do you feel like this person's safe enough to go home? Are they cognitively intact enough to make what you consider to be this bad decision that may be dangerous? I don't know. And I, I always point out that I think for you it comes from a place of benign paternalism. You're trying to do what's best for the patient. It's not necessarily a matter of you want control over the patient. Which could be, Which, you know, on, yeah. on the worst side of yeah. the sort of paternalism. We talk a lot about countertransference, and that's something to, you know, be aware of. Like, is this someone where I'm fulfilling that father figure? I feel like I need to prevent them from doing this bad thing. And maybe that's something I need to observe and, and kind of recognize in myself so I don't, like, you know, enact that But I behavior. think you're doing so much better than previous generations just by acknowledging the existence of paternalism and yeah. I think that's something that's increasingly built into medical curriculums True. to teach each of us that that sort of tendency and you know whether we have that tendency could be possibly traced back to upbringing and I think that's why it's so important to recruit medical students and of different backgrounds yeah and, you know, to bring it full circle, you mentioned the, like, historical roots of what we're doing, and we talked about countertransference. That originated in Freud, right? Yeah. Like, that is the ultimate outsider perspective. Well, this was a very interesting discussion, and I really look forward to our next two-episode arc on Freud. Excellent. Can't wait. Thank you so much for listening to the History of Madness podcast. You can find us on your podcast platform of choice. And while you're there, leave us a like. It really helps us grow the show. Thanks for listening.